It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is comedian Jocelyn Chia, who's performing in the Comedy Cellar at the Rio All Suite Hotel and Casino through March 6th. For ticket information, go to Caesars.com and for everything about Jocelyn Chia, go to JocelynChia.com and you can follow her on Twitter at Jocelyn Chia and on Facebook and Instagram at Jocelyn Comedy. And Jocelyn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ira. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you're a big part of the what I call the Singapore comedy scene. I think it's just you. Yeah, it's just me. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> right. I'm the number one comedian in Singapore. Exactly. When did you first know? I know I'm sure this is a cliche question, but I got to ask it. When did you first realize you were funny? I'm sure it was in an early stage of your life before you became what we call now attorneys and uh, then <laughs> became a stand up comedian. So, when, when did you know you were funny? Yeah, I guess around uh, when I was a teenager, when I would start cracking up my classmates, was when I knew I was funny, but I wasn't doing it on like a very consistent basis um just i do notice that people just laugh a lot or they'll be like stop stop my stomach is hurting so i was like oh i guess i am funny but i didn't really think much of it i mean i was in singapore i said to get my straight a's being funny doesn't do shit for your (laughs) singapore life (laughs) so comedy obviously wasn't your first language no so what was um, I guess academics was my first language, just focusing <laughs> on my studies, yeah. No, what I meant was, was it English or was it... Oh, English, yeah, English is my first language. Okay. You said comedy is not your first language. I know, that was okay. that was my attempt at humor. It failed miserably. <laughs> I'll live with it, that's okay. So English was your first language, and you're in an interesting culture coming from Singapore. So were your parents, after you became a lawyer, and I'm sure they were very proud and happy, and then, of course, they became... The opposite, when, yeah, when you said you were going to become a comedian. Was that a big jolt for them? I know it was, and you have a long journey to get to become a stand-up comedian because you didn't start at an early age, but did your parents react the way you thought they might react once you said that? Uh, my dad was, yeah, they both didn't react the way I thought they would react. My dad was surprisingly supportive, and my mom was like surprisingly more negative than I thought she would be. Um so dad has always been very supportive. Um, he gives me joke ideas. He watches everything I put out, which which I don't want him to. I'm like, you're banned from watching my comedy, but he still does it. But mom would be like, like they came to my Comedy Central taping. My mom was dragging her ass. She didn't even want to come. But she, my dad made her go to my Comedy Central taping. And afterwards, she's like, hey, uh, is it too late to go back to the law? <laughs> right after my <laughs> Very TV supportive. Very, very supportive. Very, very, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you haven't exactly torn up or burned your law license, right? No. Yeah, so you can always go back during slow periods of comedy. I mean, I think people think so, but I think it's a lot easier said than done. I was trained, my background is in big law, so mergers and acquisitions, private equity and capital markets. Like, I can't just go back and be like, hey, Yahoo, do you want to go buy out another company right now? And I'll do it for you. So I need a very big right. team and you know, big companies. So it means I have to be hired by one of these big guys. And then I'm going to hire someone who's left the law for so many years. So what yeah, about, it's a lot harder. But you could turn to criminal law and defend comedians who are guilty of killing their audience. Yes. And that would take some training. But yes, I yes. could possibly do that in a few years. Yeah. You have a bright brain, especially that part of the law. As you said, it's big law. It's 
my head's hurting just hearing the way you described it. So, <laughs> so to make that jump, to make that segue from an intellectually stimulating and potentially detailed, boring career, because it's all that mergers and acquisitions and capital, you had to switch off part of your brain and turn on more of the other part of the brain, and you were comfortable doing that over a period of time? Not really. It's still a struggle. I mean, I'm still much more comfortable being a, a left brain logical person. I think that's why comedy can be so frustrating for me because I'm like, dude, I'm so smart. How come I can't get a fucking joke to work? You know, like it really <laughs> boggles my my mind because like I'm used to being intelligent and being able to figure shit out. I can't freaking figure out a dick joke. It drives me nuts. But isn't that because the the basic element of comedy is surprise? So you're leading yeah. people towards A, and you quickly shift to B, mm -hmm. and that's where the generally the the reaction of the audience is, and that's where the joke is. But you have such a logical mind, and yet you clearly are funny. So do you think it's a combination of the jokes for you that do work and your personality? Because you said earlier that people thought you were funny at an early age, just be, yeah. by the way you present it. Yeah, I do. And I have a little bit of insecurity about it, but also a bit of pride about it. Like I'm trying to make it a, a strength, right? Like that I feel like I kind of cheat a little bit based on my delivery. So um, a joke can be written as a, a B joke. And then once I figure out the right way to deliver, it, it can go from a B to an A just with the right delivery. And the way yeah. your personality present, presents it as you Exactly. Say. It's the same as a character can deliver a joke and it's funnier than if it's just a neutral personality Absolutely. doing it. They can, they can yeah. sell it too. Do you find that you clearly have, you've hit a, a great comedy nerve here in, in America and you've also performed in Singapore. Are there mm -hmm. major cultural differences between the two countries that you have to shift what you're saying and how you say it? Yeah, it can be quite interesting. I mean, other than taking out the very American references, which is obvious, I, I've noticed that certain jokes like um, if you complain about men not wanting a relationship, that's not very relatable in Singapore. <laughs> like in Asia, they want relationships. <laughs> I was like, you guys don't get this, really? It's just an American thing. So there's certain um cultural differences that for sure do play out there. I'm like, oh, I guess I have to like either explain it a little bit more or be like in America, this is the case, because they're like, it's not the case in Singapore. Now here's the thing. Are you willing to become as you drift towards the Western side of things, American comedy and American humor versus Singapore. And the example you gave was perfect about the relationships. Are you willing to become shallow in order to appear funny in America versus what you could do in Singapore or other countries? Um, what do you mean by appear shallow? Well, yeah, because you mentioned about the jokes about relationships. And clearly, in Singapore, they're more serious about relationships and family and those kinds of things. And it was, again, an attempt to slightly be humorous, but, but it was also a serious intent behind my question. A lot of humor in America is somewhat shallow, and even with relationships and talking about going out on a date or going, marrying, maybe not even marrying somebody, just going out on a date and dealing with what that entails and using Tinder, et cetera, that it's kind of at a very surface level. Maybe that's the term to use rather than shallow. Oh, and, surface level comedy? Yes, versus in, as opposed to Singapore, where perhaps the comedy requires a little bit more cultural depth. I'm speculating No, not necessarily, here. because they can do very surface stuff. Like racist jokes are still acceptable in um, in Asia, I think, because their comedy is not so... Well, one, we're just as politically correct in Asia to begin with, or at least for now. So I, I think a lot of... And maybe because it's still a more developing comedy scene, like I realized that... You know how in America, when comedy first started, it was pretty racist, right? With the... What did they do? They did like 
Asian face, whatever, slit eyes. Um, well, there was also there was also Polish jokes and yeah, so ran I the gamut. Think like, yeah, so I think the beginning stages of comedy is when you go for the lower hanging fruit, sex jokes, racist jokes. So that's um, so in a more developing scene like Singapore, and with some extremely funny comedians, of course, but like overall the scene is still younger, so they still do more racial jokes. And because we're less politically sensitive in Asia, you can get away with that. So I would say that's an example of a surface joke that you can do in Asia. Um, but to your bigger question, would I go go superficial just to get a laugh? I I try not to, you know, as I develop as a comedian, I definitely judge my own jokes a lot more. Like, okay, this one's kind of hacky. You know, this one's like based on stereotypes. Um, if it gets a good laugh, like I may still do it just if, if I need to, to get the laugh, but then I'm judging myself inside. <laughs> well, I, I think because of your background, and that's why I asked that question, it was meant from that point of view that because of your background to go to college and then to become a lawyer, especially in that world that you inhabited in law, that requires a depth of thinking and commitment. And now you're in the world of comedy, which requires a depth of depravity. That's a joke. Oh, too. I see. <laughs> so that's where yeah. I was going with it. No, I see what you're saying. Yes. Um, I, I, had, I did struggle for a while and I still do a little bit with like the not being able to use a very big part of my brain, right? Because like you say, it can be a little bit more on the surface. Like I was very used to very in-depth analysis and intellectual thought, et cetera. I think that's what you're asking, right? right. Yes, there has been an adjustment. So I realized I have to get my intellectual stimulation elsewhere, right? So comedy, um, you obviously have to be also very smart to do comedy. And, and that's why it's frustrating for me. I thought that was, maybe it's not enough. Maybe smart isn't enough. I'm still trying to crack the joke, like crack the, the <laughs> puzzle. Like why being smart isn't enough to be funny. So that's still a source of like personal frustration for me. But yeah, I do have to like get my intellectual stimulation from other means. So um, uh, other books that I read or, or um, training the financial markets, I find that very intellectually stimulating for my left side of the brain. You could theoretically narrow your comedy to that part of the brain where you are appealing to a sophisticated, intellectually adept audience. You know, I did a show once and I was like, how come everyone got this joke? Like, this joke is a little bit, um, you need to know what a, an ROI is, return on investment. You need to at least have some some idea of, of that financial term and, and um, yeah, that, that lingo. And like 100% of the crowd got it. I was like, how come everyone gets it? like, normally like 60, 70% would get it. I do because I think it's a very smart, funny joke. And I could get gotten to the point where I was like, you know what? I don't have to please everyone. Like the ones who get it will really enjoy this. So I, I just do it for those people. Um, but 100% of the crowd got it. I was like, how come everyone got this joke? And they told me, oh, <laughs> we're all Ivy League grads and, and a whole bunch of us are, are, are at Columbia Business School now. I was like, oh, so this is my crowd now. <laughs> like I can only play the Ivy Leaguers. So obviously that's going to be a very tiny audience. Um, and Good point. I don't want to be elitist about my comedy. <laughs> um, Good point. <laughs> well, but it was like interesting to know, like, oh, wow, this is like a crowd that really gets my humor. Or <laughs> maybe like, you need too, yeah, right? and maybe both. maybe you can do private parties and uh, conventions and private functions with that part of it. And exactly. Then, yeah, yes. and stay commercial on the other end. Exactly. Well, when you f first made the decision, it's a fascinating story about how you you finally got into stand up comedy, and you you started out in Boston. You eventually mm. went to New York after several months, and you felt comfortable enough to try out in New York. Oh, I'm surprised uh, you knew mind. about the Boston party. Most people just know I'm a New York comic comedian. How do you know I started in Boston? I, I, I know. I know these things. I just know <laughs> these things. <laughs> so you were in Boston where they were much more accepting of you initially and more friendly than New York, which New York can just eat you alive. They do, so, yeah. so you were there for two or three months, first in Boston, and you moved to New York, 
and you worked in New York and then open mic and then you went on from there. So did you ever have the what they call the sweats or terror of coming up on stage and performing before a group of people you have no idea who they are? I mean, there'd be some nerves, not sweats and terrors, like a little bit of like nerve butterflies in the stomach, I would say. Um, the only like time where I might really like, why am I doing this myself is when it's a high stakes show. So like um, when I did my first TV taping for Access TV for Life at Gotham, William Shatner was the host. That one, I was like, oh my God, like, why do I do this to myself? You know, I'm so <laughs> nervous. Um, my Call Me Cello audition, I was like nervous the whole day. I was like, oh my God, I hate this shit. Why do I do this to myself? I should be a lawyer. <laughs> But think about it. The the one where Shatner was there, that's a that's an actually, I'll be very impersonal, very good brand to tie into when you're first mm-hmm. making your debut because everybody totally. knows William Shatner. Totally, yeah. So just on that alone, it got you some publicity and, and exposure. So from that yes. point of view, yeah. When you started out in comedy, a lot of people that I've talked to over the years, comedians, had mentors or at least people that they not patterned themselves after, but looked up to as a way of working their personality on stage out. Was there anybody like that for you? Um, oh, I mean, there were so many. You mean like people I admired and learned from? Yes, exactly. Yeah. In the world of comedy versus in the world of Shakespeare. <laughs> so. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was, that was the great thing about moving to the New York scene. Um, I mean, you have the best people to learn from. So when I was first starting out, it was folks who are, are pretty big now, like Mark Norman was someone I looked up to, Michelle Wolf was someone I looked up to, Sam Muriel was someone I looked up to, um, Dan Soder. So like a lot of these guys who are now, like, I mean, Dan Soder is now a regular on um, the show Billions, Mark Norman, you know, Sam Muriel, and Michelle Wolf, all like getting really big as comedians. Oh, Andrew Schultz was another one. So, and so these were the guys I looked up to like seven, eight years ago. So you can imagine um, what a great learning experience that was, like learning from these people who are now like, pretty big on their way to becoming star comedians. Have you ever told them that you learned from them? You know, I never did. Well, <laughs> I should probably tell them. <laughs> I think you should. You know, it's never too late. <laughs> Don't wait till you're 95 and they're all dead. I mean, it's, you might as well do it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, tell them you're grateful for what you learned from them. I think that would right. be great. Yeah. Maybe and who knows? Tell them. <laughs> they may turn around and offer you a part on something they're doing. You know? That's right. Hey, Dan, I really admire you. Can I get a part of billions? <laughs> <laughs> I could see that. Is, there, is it harder for you to, I know you were talking earlier about how your brain works and how because you're not sure about a joke necessarily, is it harder for you to write? comedy than to perform the comedy oh yeah definitely i think that's the hardest part writing the joke because you can't just write it one time you have to try it so many times before you get it perfect at least i do i mean maybe there's some naturally crazy talented folks that can get a joke great the first time i think that's another great thing about learning from the comics in the new york scene right when i got to see guys who i really admire try out new jokes because when i'm watching them they are working out their new stuff i'm like oh look even jimmy seinfeld starts with shitty jokes you know (laughs) yeah that's how you all begin Exactly. Yeah. So it makes me feel better because I think I'm so used to being perfect right away right. or like really quickly that when it takes so freaking long for a joke to get get for a joke to get good, I just assume I'm just not good enough. Um. So when I had when I actually asked Sam Morel, I was like, "Hey, Sam, you know, can you like t- show me like how you go from like a, a premise to to the final punchline? And, and is there like a, a, a process?" He goes, "No, there isn't. Because if there was, I'd have so many jokes." Right. So he's like, it takes him a long time also to figure out the right angle and the and the right punchline. And I was like, oh, this guy whom I thought was just a naturally talented writer 
also admitted that he felt like he had to outwork everyone else because he thought he wasn't good enough. That's when I realized, oh, mom was right. You really <laughs> do have to work hard in this world. That sucked. <laughs> you can't just get by on your smarts. God damn it. <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. When you were, when you were, you realize you've transitioned now from the world of law to the world of neurosis. <laughs> because most comedians, I think, are somewhat neurotic that there is something from their background that causes them to want to be funny or to seek attention. You come from a totally different background. Yeah. So you're the exception to the rule. But most, most, I was going to say most lawyers, most comedians seem to have a background either in their family history or just within themselves that comedy tends to fill that hole in a way. Mm, mm. And so how do you keep from getting neurotic when you're hanging around with all these guys? Can you define what neurotic means? Neurotic is, well, that's an excellent question. Neurotic, <laughs> that, now see, that's the attorney in you coming out. It's basically someone that is not, not thinking necessarily uh, rational about everything. They're neurotic, so certain things will tick them off that an average person it wouldn't tick off. Part of neurosis is, could be insecurity. They perceive things more personally than other people do. Uh, and I'm, I'm ad-libbing this d definition of neurosis because had I thought you'd asked me the definition, I would have looked yeah. it up. <laughs> so I'm not going to. <laughs> but that's what, that's what being neurotic is. And, and the fact that you can't see that in your fellow comedians tells me that you may be neurotic. Okay, maybe. <laughs> I don't know what it means. <laughs> so he's just normal now. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But uh, yeah, a neurotic is, I'm going to do this. I'm going to actually, while we're talking, I'm going to look it up. Because <laughs> it's bu bugging me that I don't know the exact definition. But here we go. A, okay, here's a neurotic person. Is neurotic means you're afflicted by neurosis, a word that has been in use since the 1700s to describe mental, emotional, or physical reactions that are drastic and irrational. Well, I, I kind of said that. You did kind of say that. Okay, yeah. drastic and irrational, physical and emotional reaction. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't really see that in them. I mean, they go, they do their show. Right. Joke around a little bit. They go home. I don't see the neurosis. Maybe ah, they have okay. it inside, but I don't see it. All right, that's fair. I'll let it go at that. I just see it a lot because maybe because I'm neurotic, I can see it in others. Oh, yeah. So that could be it. Or if you see a comedian on an interview show, you could see how that works out. Ah, uh, okay. Got it. Rather than on stage. On stage, it's different because on stage, That's with stage some exceptions, yeah, it's scripted and with some exceptions. Right. So you're not going to see it as much unless that's their character, which is fine. But off stage, it tends to be. You realize now, since this discussion, no comedian is going to come on my show. <laughs> well, actually, I did, I did experience one comedian. It was pretty shocking. Um, it was a charity event, and it was a pretty uptight crowd. He went on, and he's a killer comedian, right? A comedian that I've, I've always admired for a very long time. And it, I mean, his jokes were great. You know, Louis Black was there. Like, Louis Black and I were laughing away. and But the crowd was, like, admittedly not appreciating him the way I think normal crowds do, and definitely the way me and, and Louis Black were appreciating him. So afterwards, I was just like, oh, you know, that was a really good set. He goes, he's like flares up and he's like do you he's like no don't don't do you not know comedy like are you did you see what happened i'm like hey look lewis black was laughing i think he knows comedy and so i just like said that to him and then i stormed off um <laughs> so that was like an example of like someone's like complete overreaction and someone give me a fucking compliment too so I, I clearly he took like that audience to heart and was just like taking out on me um but yeah it, it upset me a lot and like 
to this day, I'm still like, oh, don't ever give this guy a compliment. And I said something <laughs> to him again later in the green room, like an, a, you know, months later when we were hanging out in the green room. I was like, yeah, you know, la la la. Like, I can't remember what they were talking about, like complimenting comedians. I was like, well, I know better than to give you a compliment. Was like, oh, you're talking about that? I'm like, yeah, I'm talking about that time. <laughs> of course. I think also what I was referring to now that I think about it more, the typical environment in a comedy club uh, where comedians are critiquing or taking shots at fellow comedians that are on stage and are not necessarily supportive. You said yourself, they're kinder in Boston than they are in New York when you were starting out. So maybe that's what I'm, I'm alluding to, more oh, of that kind and, uh, of well, interaction. When, when I say kinder, meaning at the open mic level, because that's how you had to start. You right. start at the open mic level. They're much right. more supportive in Boston. They will laugh. They will listen. If it's funny, they'll laugh. Um, in the New York scene, it was very... Um, to to each their own you know a lot of people go to an open mic pump and dump they just do their set and they bounce without staying to support other comics and like if no one stays to support how how's anyone gonna know how good their jokes are right so only like the first three comedians may get a decent audience but then people don't even really pay attention they're like sitting there looking at their nose looking at their phone um so yeah the new york scene was much much tougher because it was just a lot less supportive i had to finally find certain mics that were more supportive where they're like put your phone away you know no notes in the audience and then you can finally get a good read on your material laughing buddha comedy open mic was, was like one notor- no, known for that um so that's how i could finally actually get good but like if i had to just do the the open mics where everyone's just like reading their notes and checking their phones and there's no way to find out if you're funny or your jokes are funny yeah no that makes sense now, you may not get this reference again, so this may be a cultural thing, but I had a great idea for you uh, for an endorsement deal that you could become a spokesperson for Chia Pet. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, are they still in business? Yeah, I'm sure they're out there with your with your name and their, their name. I, th- I thought it was a natural. So thank you for laughing at that one. I just thought that would be a good, <laughs> a good reference. But Yeah, I learned that when I was in a sorority. Uh, so I joined a sorority in college, and they all called me cha 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 chia <laughs> When you're when you're sitting down and writing and you're focusing and you've got that right brain left brain thing going, how many hours a day do you commit to writing new material, or or is it just when you feel the the need for it and then you'll sit down and do it? Yeah, very little. I'm supposed to commit myself to writing ten twenty minutes a day, but I often don't do it. So every once in a while, I'm like, all right, let's really freaking do this thing. Um, but more often, I need the accountability of like some some other comedians to do it. Like, okay, guys, let's just get together and write and then to prepare for my writing session then I have to write some shit <laughs> yeah that, that, that'll work it's kind of like cleaning out your apartment for the cleaning lady comes. Yes, exactly. oh I need to prepare for this thing else I'll be embarrassed then. Like, the, pre, the pre-clean the yeah. pre-clean yeah this is the pre-write <laughs> so when you go on stage and you start performing here's the thing that I'm always fascinated by and I, I admire comedians that can do it and I understand part of it's just memorization and preparation but still you have to remember your jokes and you have to remember the order of the jokes, the setup and the punchline. Is that difficult for you or easy for you or in between? Um, that depends on the length of time. If it's the time length that I'm used to doing. So in New York City, the general length of time is 15 minutes. Then it's not not really a problem. It has to be longer than what I'm used to. Then that'll be more challenging. But I use like memory tricks like... Uh, I'll make a connecting sentence between one joke and the next. Like if the first joke is about like um, being fat and if the second joke is about my dad, I'll be like, okay, well, dad, what's fat? <laughs> Go from fat so to it's dad. A, a mnemonic trick. In that a sense. mnemonic, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Have you performed in Las Vegas before? 
Not yet. I'm very excited. Oh, this I is her first there. time. Okay. Yeah. I was there many, many years ago when I was just an open micer about seven years ago or so. And I went to a Laugh Factory and another comedy show, I think Vegas comedy show, something like that. Uh, and I said, oh, I really hope I can come back and perform here one day. And then voila, I get to do it at the Comedy Cellar Vegas, the whole week staying at the Rio Hotel. Unbelievable. They paid for my flight. That's unbelievable. I just couldn't believe I managed to like, manifest this thing. You get these little touchstones in your comedy life that you know that you've made progress. So Yeah, I, I remember it. Yeah, go on. Yeah, no, I was going to say, because, for example, you received the Rising Star Award in comedy at the Asian American Television and Film Festival. Mm-hmm. You, you performed at the Boston Comedy Festival, Women in Comedy Festival, and colleges at NYU and Harvard University. So you have all these little touchstones. Now you're coming to Vegas, mm-hmm. and, and actually you're going to be here tonight. So that's another touchstone. Where, yes. where do you see your future five years from now, 10 years from now in the world of comedy? Do you want to do a sitcom? Do you want to do a special for Netflix? Do you want to just stay home and sew? I mean, I don't know. What is it you want to do for the next five or 10 years? Yeah, I definitely um, like to get on the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, do the Montreal Just for Less, and have one or two Netflix specials in the next 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) And then is touring a challenge for you because you're going from city to city and sometimes country to country? Does that get tiring after a while because of the restrictions in terms of travel these days? Oh, I see. Um, well, within America, no, not really, right? There are no real, real restrictions. But yeah, my, my tour for Asia had to get canceled for this year. And that, wait, did I do it? Yeah, last year got canceled. We were trying to do it early this year, around now. That also got canceled. Um, Australia as well has been postponed to next year. So yeah, absolutely. I couldn't do the international tours, but even America, the whole like, oh, civil liberties, <laughs> it's not really a problem. You can do comedy right now anyway. But you find that when you're touring, that does that give you a break from having to worry about sitting home and writing? Which I know you, you mentioned you didn't really stay to the schedule on that. So yeah, I don't stay to the schedule anyway. So, so in a way, tour matter. in a way touring gives you an out <laughs> to that schedule that you're not adhering to anyway. No, not necessarily. I mean, when you're touring, you can still write. There's no yes. excuse not to write. That's just me being lazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you see yourself writing beyond your act? And what I mean by that is writing a script or writing a book, perhaps? You know, I, I've been asked that. Um, I had a really pretty big agency, Gersh, actually reached out to ask if I had a sitcom. And the truth is, if I don't really have like it within me, like I don't feel like there's anything I really, really want to make a sitcom about, then I don't think I'm, I should force myself to make a sitcom just because it's the path to start. I mean, that's not the right way to do it. But um, I mean, for me, I think there's just so much TV out there. There are just so many shows already. I'm not, I'm not really sure I do much service to the world by adding another television show. Um, not that there aren't like a whole lot of stand-up comedians, but you know, my voice as a stand-up is pretty unique. There are not that many Asian-American um, female comedians out there, especially that, and I don't think there's any that really actually migrated from, definitely not from Singapore, right? So like you've been having that immigrant experience, Asian American female, pretty rare. Um, so I think that's like unique enough. If I come with like a really unique sitcom idea that I think needs to be out there, um, that's like really different from everything that's already out there, then I will. But uh, until I I get that idea, then I don't really want to add to the noise. Like, I think for me, I have a more macro perspective. Like, is this really going to serve the world? You know, that's how I feel about it. And you're focused on stand-up. So, yeah, you get keep getting better at that. Yeah. And enjoying it more and not worry about the external demands that people make that, well, since you're recognized, they want you to do this, that. But sometimes when I talk to people, that's what they want to do. They want to do these X, Y, and Z things. But I think- and good it, for them, yeah. Yeah, and good for them. 
Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been comedian Jocelyn Chia. She's performing in the Comedy Cellar at the Rio All Suite Hotel and Casino through March the 6th. For ticket information, go to Caesars.com. And for everything about Jocelyn Chia, go to JocelynChia.com and follow her on Twitter at Jocelyn Chia, that's C-H-I-A, on Facebook and Instagram at Jocelyn Comedy. Jocelyn, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. I know some bitch took Jocelyn Comedy from Instagram. She only has like, she only has like one follower who's my friend. <laughs> so I have to get famous enough that Instagram would just take it away from her. Exactly, or, or you buy it from her, maybe do that. I've already reached out to her, she didn't reply. <laughs> okay, well, thanks again. See you next time. See you next time. Thank you. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Happy.